You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hey, everybody. Dave here. I've got a quick request for you all. If you could leave a review for our show on iTunes or wherever you listen, that would be great. We don't have a whole lot of reviews up now, and we'd like to have more positive reviews out there. So if you could take the time, leave us a positive review, we would appreciate it. Thanks. You know, just protect yourself and slow things down. If something seems too good to be true, in almost all cases, it is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the one and only show where we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, we're going to have my interview with Gary Nosner. He's author of the book Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI hostage negotiator. And we are back. Joe, what do you got for us this week? So this week, Webroot, who is a company that makes security software for businesses and individuals. Yep, yep. Friend of the show. Yep. David DeFore is frequently on from yeah, Webroot. Yeah, over on CyberWire, yeah. Yeah. And they released their 2019 Webroot threat report. Okay. It has a lot of interesting information in it, and I would encourage everyone to read it. We'll put a link in the show notes. Okay. A lot of companies release these kind of reports annually. For example, Verizon releases an annual data breach investigation report, or a DBIR, yep. that is much looked forward to in the security community. Yeah, very well known. And you know, if you start reading these kind of reports that come out from these companies, you kind of get a good feel for what's going on. So I recommend people, when they see these reports come out, just pick them up and, and peruse them, if nothing else. Yeah. It's good. But back to the WebRoot report. One of the key statistics in this report that was pretty interesting, I thought, was that 40%, of malicious links are hosted what the report calls benign, but basically good websites. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So what has happened here in one of these cases? The first thing that's happened is somebody has gone out and compromised a web server that somebody else is running. Okay. And then they've gone in and they've put some malicious web page on that server. So this is the attacker's own content. And they're essentially in control of it because they have this kind of access. Okay. The entity that controls the web server is probably not aware that this malicious web page is there. Right. So if I was the bad guy, I would take a folder full of my stuff, try to find some place deep inside your web page that I've gained control of. Right. And tuck it away there. Right. A place where nobody goes to look. Right. And we've seen this, actually, that one of the things they do, these attackers will do, is they, they will put a really deep directory structure in there, which just means mm. that there's a lot of slashes, you know, like characters slash characters slash characters, so that if somebody were to go looking for it, it would be really hard for them to find it because it's got so many directories in, yeah. in there. I don't know how effective that is in finding it. I think computers are pretty good at, at traversing their own directory trees. But the malicious content that's on the benign server might not actually be malware. It might just be a redirecting link. It takes you out somewhere to a web server that the attacker controls. Right. So why is this dangerous to users? Mm. Let's say I'm an attacker and I compromise a site that you normally go to. And I, I put my malicious link or my redirect to a malicious site on that website. And then I send out a message that says, come check out our new coupon code. Okay. You get 20% off your next order. And you mouse over the link, and it, it says it's the right link. Even if you copy the link down, 
right? Or enter it manually and go to this page, you're still going to get to the web page that either loads malicious content or redirects you to a site that, that attempts to load malicious content. Right, right. So the actual link is from a legit website. Exactly. And so there's no, I mean, it looks legitimate it because looks it legitimate. is legitimate. It because, is, well, it's, it's a legitimate it's, website. It's a legitimate website with illegitimate content. Right. right. Yep. So of course the question is, how do you protect yourself against this? <laughs> yeah. And beyond saying that you should have antivirus software and maybe web surfing protection software and make sure that they're up to date, I don't know what other protections you would have for that. So these things tend to lag behind, right, at least by a couple of hours. So the malicious content will be flagged eventually and put into a web filtering program that you may have or a web protection oh, program. Oh, I see. Yeah. But if I'm an attacker, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, here's your coupon code only for anybody that clicks on it in the next two hours, uh, right? Yeah. To incentivize you to kind of put the artificial time constraint on the message. So these folks assume that this is going to be tracked down quickly and it's just a numbers game that yeah. they're posting bunches of these. Absolutely. So it's a, sort of a game of, of cat and mouse, I guess. So. Yeah, they, they've compromised a web server and they're going to make hay while the sun shines. Mm-hmm. There are some services out there that will allow you to basically run your web browser in someone else's virtual machine. Yes. So you can run, uh, I think it's a, there's some of them that are cloud-based. And yep. So nothing's ever actually running on your machine. And it's sort of, so I guess it's kind of sandboxed and quarantined in a way. It so is. So something does blow up, it blows up, you know, remotely. <laughs> right. And it blows up in something that's disposable. Right. 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 So you can just say, oh, that machine's corrupted. Delete it and give me a new one. Right. So those services are out there. If you're really uh, concerned about this sort of thing, right. you can hunt down one of those. But it's a clever one uh, yeah, and, and hard to fight against. It's hard to fight against, right. But Well, I guess the other thing we could do is the, the advice we give where if someone is sending you a link from a legitimate company that you do business with, don't click the link. Just go to that company manually. Right. But right. even if you enter this this malicious URL manually – you'll still get the malicious content. Right, right, right. But I'm saying don't enter the whole URL. Right, like just if go to the company's saying, website yeah, and then look like for their code. If someone was yeah. from Johns Hopkins you know, University, right. and just go to jhu.edu rather yep. than the entire link Correct. and try to find it from there. Because yes. if it's... If Use it's, the interface. Yeah, if it's legit, it's going to be something that they're going to want you to find. Right, and chances so, are there won't be links to it from the uh, legitimate content. Right. All right. Well, I guess it's really interesting that is such a high percentage. That is That's what shocked me. It was that 40% of the malicious links are out there on benign sites. And that's because a lot of these sites are maintained by organizations or people that don't have the resources to have a, a full-blown security organization. Yeah. To maintain the site. And I think also if you're in a situation where multiple people are responsible for maintaining different parts of a site, right. it might be harder to detect when somebody from the outside, gets access. Yeah. yeah. Or if, what if somebody on the inside is doing it too? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a, possibility a possibility as well. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> that's sorry. an interesting one. I'm sorry I don't have good news on this one, that there's an easy way to protect yourself, but sometimes that's the way life is. You yeah. Know? <laughs> well, Joe, my story this week, you know, as a producer of several podcasts, mm -hmm. I get regular offers from various folks to help promote our podcasts. Mostly I get them on LinkedIn. There's sort of a cottage industry out there uh, where people come and they reach out to me and they say they can move our show up on the iTunes charts 
which is a good thing because the higher you are on those charts, that just improves your visibility and helps Correct. bring in new listeners. It's and, called podcast discovery. Yes. Right. And Jack Resider over at Darknet Diaries did a whole episode on this. Yeah, that was a good episode. It's called Chart Breakers. Yep. Uh, so I highly recommend it. Uh, Jack does a great job over there, Darknet Diaries. So, so do check that out if this is something you're interested in. And if, I've never responded to any of these sorts of things. I prefer you know, to do, uh, do our chart rising the old-fashioned way to actually earn it. So the folks over at Rebel Base Media, it's a company who helps people promote their podcasts. They're actually Mm -hmm. podcasters themselves. They had a recent blog post about podcast review extortion. And uh, one of their customers wrote in, a podcaster uh, who goes by the name of James, wrote in and said he'd been approached on Instagram by someone named Misha, who claimed to be a fan of the show and was offering to help the show grow. Uh, She claimed some expertise in helping podcasts move up the charts. And the podcaster was intrigued by the offer, replied, just said he was interested, but didn't, uh, just wanted more information. And the next thing that he heard back from Misha was a response that claimed to have done a bunch of promotional work for the podcast and demanded an $800 payment. Huh. Now, there'd been no agreement. There had been nothing had been signed. There was no, none, none of that. No work was done. But so when this podcaster refused to pay the $800, right. Misha came back and threatened to use his network to flood the podcaster's podcast with one-star reviews on all of the directories, including Apple Podcasts, yep. and also threatened to get the podcast banned, which I guess you could do if you wrote in a bunch of claims that the show was violating rules and so on and so forth. You right. Could, it's possible you could have... Bad things happen. Now, since then, the original Instagram account has been deleted, but uh, the folks over at Rebel Base Media wanted to help get the word out that, you know, this is the kind of scam that grows. Right. (laughs) So so if you're out there, uh, you're a podcaster, uh, be aware of this. This is this sort of uh, extortion kind of thing could happen. And one of the things that strikes me is, you know, particularly with Apple, there is not a clear way to get customer support from Apple when you're a podcaster. Yeah. Apple is not a very engaging, (laughs) interactive company. No. So if someone were to do this kind of gaming, I I think it's hard to get a real person on the phone or or via email or whatever to respond. So that makes this threat a little more plausible, I think. Yeah. It makes it a little more scary for podcasters out there. Uh, It's funny that this person reached out on Instagram Mm. Uh, I had somebody do that for my podcast. Yeah. And the funny thing was that, that it starts off with somebody saying, hey, sir, I'm a podcast promoter. And I, I know because I've listened to Jack's show about how the, how this works. And I'm like, no, thank you. And he's like, okay. And then a couple weeks later, the same guy reaches out to me again. So I just took a screenshot of the conversation and sent it to him. And he said, what's that? I said, that's a screenshot of the conversation the last time you asked me. <laughs> and he goes, oh, okay. Then he reaches out to me a third time, Dave, a third time. Wow. And he says, I can promote your podcast. So I sent him another screenshot. And he said, what's this? I said, that's a screenshot of the screenshot of the first conversation we've had. So we've now had this conversation three times. Yeah. And then I I blocked him. I just got tired of dealing with it. So. Well, I think part of what's going on here is that I, th- I think there's a relatively easy way people can kind of harvest up the contact information from podcasts. I think that's readily available. Yeah, well, this was the Instagram account for that podcast. Yeah. 
So yeah, but I think through Apple's directory, you know, like part of your RSS feed is your contact information, yes, the contact uh, email. It is. So I, I suspect people can go and harvest these things, uh, you know, in large buckets, and then just basically spam everybody with these things. But That's right. This is the first time I've heard of someone turning it around. Yeah, this and is kind of trying devious. to extort someone. And I don't, I don't doubt that there actually is a network out there capable of doing this. So maybe your best bet when you hear this, the offer for podcast promotion is just block the user immediately. Yeah. And, and I think most of these podcast promotion things, well, certainly a lot of them are shady. So yeah. I would say, you know, <laughs> there are people who will legitimately help you market your podcast using traditional ways and just be careful yeah. uh, with everything. There's, there's plenty of people out there who want to take your money and try to do things in shady ways. The shortcut is rarely the path to success. I, right. I would agree. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So that is my story this week. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day this week comes from a listener. His name is Ganesh, and he says, I'm a regular listener to your podcast, and I love it. Keep up the great work. I found this in the quarantine of my email, and I thought this was funny. He says, I've defanged the URL. It, it turns out the URL takes you to an adult website. Joe, this one comes from Russia. Mm. You know what that means. Ridiculous I, accents. I do know what that means, Dave. It's <laughs> time for Russian accent. Joe, have at it. The subject is, how do you do? I am Karina from Petrozovatsk, Russia. Do I sound like a Karina, Dave? Uh, you sound like maybe a member of the 1976 Russian swim team ah, for the Olympics. Okay. But go on. As IT specialist by profession and belonging to an upper middle class family, both my parents are engineers, and they brought me up in a liberal way, giving me enough freedom for my thoughts and actions. Many have criticized them for that, but in my case, it did me only good, and I grew up to be a free-thinking, liberal, yet well-mannered and established-in-life individual. Only thing lacking in my life is the need for a loving life partner. My life is so busy in the computer labs of my software firm that I don't get time to mingle up with others in the nightclubs and other social events like my friends. So I was left behind in personal life. Then I came through this premium dating and friendship website whose primary aim is to make suitable people meet each other and make family of their own. Though I yet haven't met my love here, I am fully satisfied with this website as it has given me some exposure as to what I am to expect in the future. I have made many new friends, both girls and men, and now have a clear idea on what sort of man I want in my life. So, if you are in search of a life partner, join the website and make sure to meet me. I assure you, we will have a wonderful and interesting conversation and decide on our future. My profile, karina.rubeauty.cn. Hmm. My apologies to all of our Russian listeners. The, yeah, both of them. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, there's lots to unpack here. Yeah. Uh, first of all, .cn. Is China. China. Right. <laughs> Not Russia. Not Russia. Uh -huh. So there's, there's a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. Also interesting, I, I thought where she says she's made many new friends, both girls and men. Right. I think there's a couple of things going on here. She's sort of indicating that... 
there's a bunch of women here also. Yeah. A bunch of nice gals here. Right. Because I think on dating sites, I think there's a, a thought with men that it's just going to be a bunch of guys. Right. You know, sort of uh, trying to pounce on the one girl in the room. Well, you that's, know, that sort of thing. That's what happened with Ashley Madison. That, that yeah. was the, the ruse that the hackers presented was right, that right. All, the, all the women on Ashley Madison were, were fake women. Yeah. That it was just all a bunch of men uh-huh. on the site. Yeah. Well, and I suppose that Karina is probably... Not authentic as well. I think that's a foregone conclusion, Dave. <laughs> yes, I think so. I think so. All right. Well, it's a good catch of the day. Thanks to our listener, Ganesh, for sending it in. Coming up next, we're going to have my interview with Gary Nosner. He's author of the book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Gary Nosner. He's a former FBI agent, has really had an interesting career. And he's the author of the book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator. Here's my conversation with Gary Nosner. Well, negotiators respond to a you know, pretty wide range of incidents dealing with criminals, you know, mentally ill individuals, depressed individuals, suicidal terrorists, you name it. But One common denominator that we typically find is a high emotional state. And the first and most important task of the negotiator before we can get into understanding the other person's desires, predicament, behavior, we have to lower the emotional content. So most of the strategies that we employ as negotiators involve first de-escalating the interaction we're having with the individual. Hopefully that allows us to better able to move towards a more in-depth conversation about what it may take to resolve the situation. And what are some of the techniques you would use to do that? A calm voice is a bit contagious. It's hard to argue with somebody that's not arguing back. A demonstration of respect and uh, even for someone that (laughs) may be engaged in activity that's not particularly respectful. But Every human being wants to be respected, so you you project a genuine desire to not make their day worse because they're having a bad day, but your willingness to help and to understand, it becomes increasingly difficult for an individual, a perpetrator as you were, to stay angry and agitated when they're being responded to in a very thoughtful, engaging, and helpful manner. There's a thing that is hard to identify that good negotiators project, and it's essentially likability. I mean, what is likability? It, it might be fairly hard to define, but I think most of us know it when we see it. And it's someone that we want to work with, and we develop a certain level of trust with, and we feel someone that's there to uh, sincerely and generally try to help us in a situation. So those are sort of the the general, very broad approaches that a negotiator would take in order to create a relationship that then inevitably leads us to be able to influence this person away from violence towards cooperation. Now, our focus here, of course, is social engineering. What sort of advice do you have for folks to protect themselves from being influenced, from being manipulated to do things they don't want to do? Well, I I think you have to be careful when people try to lead you in a certain direction by forcing you to agree, you know, there's this aspect of influence where if we lock someone in, uh, we do it as negotiators. We would say, for example, to a bank robber, you know, earlier you said that you didn't want to hurt anybody. And I really believed you when you said that. And that sounds like it's important to you. 
what I'm really trying to do when I respond in that fashion is lock that person into living up to their own statement that they made earlier. A lot of manipulators will look for you to say something and then try to exploit that to get you to agree with them. And you have to be cautious about that. And the best way to do that is, you know, to repeat what they're saying, to ask clarifying questions and to slow the process down. We typically think we have to make decisions right away when often the best course is to slow down, you know, hence the name of my book, Stalling for Time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we make better thoughts and analyze situations more accurately when when we slow it down, particularly in a, in a highly emotional context. Yeah, I think we see that with scammers a lot, where they try to accelerate that timeline. They, they try to make you feel as though you need to do something right away. Well, yeah, you see it. In fact, it's, it's funny. It's come up recently in my own life. Several friends have shared with me the fact that they've gotten these phone calls from people to pretend that they're with some a legal entity, a court, and if somebody doesn't pay a fine right away, then they're going to get arrested and so forth and so on. And, you know, you're trying to convince the perpetrator is trying to convince the person to act very quickly to come up with some money and send it right away. You know, when someone really needs to slow down and ask a lot of important questions, you know, about who, who did you say you're again? How can I contact you? What's your number? And please let me write this down again. Which agency did you say you were with? And and of course, you would know I would have to verify all this stuff before we would move forward. And then they're typically going to hang up because they're, they're looking for the person that emotionally overreacts. You know, you know, in, in Latin America right now, they have uh, what they call virtual kidnappings and where people will call someone up and they know the children are at school and they'll say, I've kidnapped your child mm. and I want. And it's usually a reasonable amount of money, a small amount of money that someone can obtain pretty quickly. They're not asking for millions so say, I want $2,000 or I'm going to hurt your kid. And then they will re- actually grab another child who will yell on the phone, mom, mom, help me. You know, it's not even the person's real child, but your emotions trigger that parental response. And there are many cases where people fall prey to that and go out to their ATM and get some cash and deliver it to somebody when in fact their kids sitting in their classroom, uh, no worse for wear. So again, it's that point we, we've been discussing here, David, about, you know, people trying to rush you into doing things. And when we rush, we, we typically make bad decisions. D- don't be rushed into agreeing or making a decision. Ask open-ended questions. Listen. Defer decision-making. And nothing's ever in a rush. It's, it's exactly the concept. Think about the, the car salesman. When you go into the showroom, they never want you to leave. They want you to walk out of there with a new car. And if you say, well, I'm, I've got to check some other places I'm looking, you're more and more likely to get a better deal or they will call you to get you back. So, again, avoid that inclination to rush into an agreement on something that may not be in your best interest. You know, and when in doubt, you know, just say, well, you know, can we talk about this later or uh, let me recontact you? What's a good number? I need to talk to some people. And, and typically, if it's a uh, if you're dealing with a swindler, you won't hear from them again. But. But, you know, just protect yourself and slow things down. If something seems too good to be true, in almost all cases, it is. You know, it's funny, before we connected here, I was looking over your bio and and, uh, reviewing your book, and and the idea struck me. I thought, you know what? Gary must be pretty good at negotiating to buy a new car. (laughs) Well, those guys are pretty good, you know, and I'm not... (laughs) I'm not too bad, but, uh, you, you know, I, business negotiations is a little bit different. But I, I think in, as in any negotiations, if you are able to walk away 
uh, it gives you a tremendous advantage. You know, you, you go into the car dealership at the end of the month when the salesmen are trying to get their quota, you know, and they're trying to get you to bite and you have time. They don't. And use that to your advantage and just say, well, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but I was offered pretty good situation down the road at the other dealership. And, you know, I want to go look at that some more. And you'll find that the deal continues to get better and better for you. You just have to be patient. And then sometimes you're going to hit a brick wall where they're just not going to go any lower. And, and then you have to make a decision. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean people are going to allow you to take them to the cleaners. They have to make a living, too. But, you know, if you slow down, you're much more likely to get a, a better situation out of any any kind of uh, negotiations, uh, you know, buying an appliance or a car, whatever it might be. So that would that would be my advice. What do you think, Joe? It's a really uh, interesting guy, huh? That was a really good interview, Dave. I know I say that about a lot of these interviews, and they're all good <laughs> interviews. I think that you and I do quality interviews in this show. Yeah. But I really like this one. This is a different take. Gary's job is to influence people to act in their best interest or in the best interest of other people in the case of hostage takers, right? right? Which is kind of different from what we usually talk about, people whose job it is to get you to act against your own interests. Right. I think that's just an interesting take on it. But again, we hear the same advice. Slow down. Mm-hmm. Slow down. I like the idea of coming up with a bunch of questions, open-ended questions you can ask a scammer. You know, the guy's calling you, he's an IRS scammer. He go, okay, let me write down the name of your agency again, IRS. And what does that stand for? That would be a great question to ask them. See if they even know what IRS stands for. Right. <laughs> right? Take, yeah. It's take, Internal take Revenue Service. Normally, they just know they're running an IRS scam, right? Right. They, don't, they might not know what that means. Yeah, yeah. But someone who works at the IRS, they'll know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Finally, I'm going to use his advice when the next time I go to buy a car, I'm going to go in at the end of the month and just play it real cool. Yeah, right. Maybe I'll buy a car. I don't know. Right. Right. I got another guy up the street that's offering me something. Yeah. I just imagine him on the you know, the other end of a of a phone, you know, with the the car dealer seller, you know, using all of his hostage negotiating skills. Right. To, <laughs> and the guy doesn't know that he's a hostage. Right. Exactly. He just, just has no idea. You know, what is it going to take for you for me to get you to buy this car today? You know. <laughs> well, earlier you told me that uh, you wanted to give me a good deal. Is that right? You know, just uh, right. Hold trap them into their own words. Yeah. Like exactly. He just he has no idea. They have no idea who they're dealing with. Yeah. So. Well, thanks so much to Gary Nosner for joining us again. The title of the book is Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator. You can find that at all the usual places you buy books. We do appreciate him sharing his time with us. And that is our podcast. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 